This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, for short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today are Andrea Gallo. Hi, I'm Andrea. I'm from Linaro. We work a lot in open source, and I have been involved with the Chaos Board since it was launched about three years ago. Sean Goggins. Hi, I'm Sean Goggins. I am also a Chaos original, and I'm at the University of Missouri. I'm a professor of computer science. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you. I'm the director of sales at Petrugia, also co-founder of the Chaos Project. And I am excited to introduce two guests today who are behind the Smart Shark project. Stefan Alexander, welcome. Yes, hi. Uh, I'm Stefan. I'm currently at the University of Clausthal in Germany, and I'm working there on analyzing software retrospectively, looking at the evolution and especially how bugs get introduced into software and if we can detect them early. And I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you about our SmartShark project where we collected a huge amount of data to just study how software evolves. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm a PhD student at the University of Göttingen, Germany, and I'm uh, also part of the SmartShark project, and I use it for my research for software quality evolution. Thank you for coming on to ChaosCast today. I had someone recommend that I reach out to you because you are also in the space of analyzing open source projects. In a nutshell, what is SmartShark? Well, it's... On the one side, the collection of tools for collecting data about the evolution of software projects. And on the other side, it's the data itself that we collect and we share it publicly for other researchers so that they can also analyze and study how software evolves over time. How has this started or evolved over time? Have you had these exact objectives when you started SmartShark or did you have any ancestors, any, any previous projects that may have started with similar or different objectives? How has it all started? Well, it actually started with Alex's brother, Fabian Trauch, who did his master's thesis with me. And our goal was um, to really try to better integrate different sources of historic data. So better integrate data from issue tracking systems with data from version control systems and not throw everything in separate databases for which there were tools out there, but really try to harmonize the data while we're collecting it to make it easier for researchers and possibly later for tool developers to analyze this data, to get insights from them and to make everything more replicable and more reproducible what we're doing. So we then set out we built everything at the beginning with Grimoire Labs tools in the background and harmonized it via EMF and then put in some tools of ourselves. But we basically had to throw that all out because at some point we realized 
it just didn't scale that way. And we just started from scratch again. And that's the current version 2.0 from our perspective of SmartShark, where we have basically a lot of Python tools, some Java tools to collect data from Git, from Jira, from GitHub issues, and so on, and do static analysis with this data over time. I see on GitHub, you have a number of repositories, and I also, your GitHub homepage provides a very nice overview of everything. Tell us a little bit about how it's organized. I see different pieces in here, and I think it'd be very interesting for audience to know, let's say I want to learn something about a repository using SmartShark, where do I begin? Yeah, so basically, we have a central component called the server shark, which is orchestrating uh, everything else. The mining itself is done in plugins. And uh, we basically settled on the lowest common denominator, which means executing from the command line. So the plugins themselves are orchestrated via the server shark and directly writing into the database. These are usually run in our HPC system that's provided at our university. And uh, this uh, really helps us to have a bit more data because it's a lot of scaling problems. If you analyze every file from every commit of, of all of the projects, we had some very large projects. For example, Lucene was a very large number of commits, very large files, and it's better to split this work up. And with this architecture, we can basically run one revision of one commit of a project for one job in our HPC system. And yeah, that's basically how the data goes into the database. And from there on, it can be accessed, for example, with Jupyter Notebooks for analysis. In some of our projects, we are using the Visual Shark, which is basically a graphical front-end, basically consists of a Django back-end, which provides a REST API and a little overlay MySQL database overlay over the SmartShark database. And uh, we use this for manual validation in projects a lot. So for example, we can display everything for a participant or ourselves to validate some of the data. For example, we can display a commit of a project and all the metrics that we gathered for this commit and uh, basically linked issues and extended analysis. That's fantastic. That's, that sounds really well thought out, especially the componentization part of it? It was, well, kind of a trade-off. I was not involved in the original decision. I would have, maybe would have advocated for something else because the plugins itself have to know the database structure. From an engineering standpoint, you would have to uh, have some kind of in-between and then the server component itself writes into the database. But uh, as it turns out, this is much less work. The other one would be a lot of overhead and we are basically tackling this with a kind of an OR mapper in between, which provides a structure of our MongoDB database, which is the basic of the database that Smartshark uses, so that we have a common structure for every plugin. And it works really nicely. Yeah, that sounds really nice. I think the one limitation, I don't even think it's a limitation, but you mentioned every plugin needs to have the server, which makes complete sense. How I would do, because if each of them stood alone, that seems like it would be a lot harder to get a coherent picture out of it. This was actually one of the reasons why we had to restart everything from scratch, because in the initial iteration, when we tried to build it with EMF and harmonize that way, we couldn't scale out this way. Right. And that's why we went back and said, okay, let's just say a plugin is in the end a bash call that we prescribe to some degree how this bash call has to look like. And there has to be 
two or three files with metadata in the folder as well. And then it can be anything. It can be Python code, Java, whatever. We don't really care about it. And that way we can really scale out basically to any infrastructure where we can call bash, which for us is um, the big batch system of the university, but we can also run it locally in a Redis key. Yeah. Well, having access to supercomputing resources or a cluster, it sounds like you do an HPC cluster. That certainly makes a lot of the processing go faster, I would <laughs> imagine, but forces it into a batch mode, in my experience. Is that also part of what you have to work with? Yes. So it's really a Slurm batch processing system. It was an IBM LSF a couple of years earlier. We submit your jobs. We wait for them to complete. And because these systems are by their very nature, sometimes unreliable due to the huge amount of nodes. This also puts a lot of burden on our end to check whether everything really ran as we expected. And well, most of the time it works, but we also had some issues with the system as can only be expected with systems of this size that really then forced us to recollect data or throw away data. And well, we by now have components that validate if everything was collected as we expected and we run them for a couple of days to just ensure it worked. Yeah, I work on a similar project and we definitely run it for several days. I think what the Smart Shark folks that have done that is wise that we haven't done is you have this component model. The system that my team has developed as part of the Chaos Project Augur gathers data and for many different types of you know like issues, pull requests, all those details, very similar to what Visual Shark and Smart Shark do. But we have it in one giant app. So I would say that one of the lessons learned that I'm seeing SmartShark play out is the componentization of all the functions. So you're not testing and releasing software for everything all at once. It also helps a lot actually with working with students because you don't have to give them this huge part of the software. You can give them a small piece right. and let them develop that. Yeah, and I think it really helps. Yeah, I can see where it definitely would. So it sounds like you've collected just a huge pile of data. If you go down to the file level and every commit on a file and having metrics on all of that, what are some of the things that you have learned from the data? How have you used it? Well, one thing we already learned is that um, just collecting this data and just these scope of the data and the amount of the data that was surprising for us. So for the about 70 projects, we already collected about 13 terabytes of data. And most of this is really just results of static analysis over time. Mm -hmm. We threw away stuff that was redundant because basically it didn't change over time a lot. And it's still one terabyte of data. So just the amount of information that you can collect just through static analysis, we're talking about stuff like lines of code, cyclomatic complexity, nesting depths, stuff like that, but mm -hmm. also um, then PMD warnings, so stuff that static analyst tools finds. This is a huge amount of data that was really surprising that just this kind of information adds up so much because usually when we talk about what is the large part of software data, we're talking about the, I don't know, the size of the source code or all the textual data we see on Stack Overflow or on GitHub or something like that. But just static analysis data over time that this actually gets to the scale of big data, that was kind of surprising for us. And then 
There's also all the work that Alex is doing as part of his PhD. Uh, he gained a lot of insights already into the evolution of static analysis warnings over time. So Alex, I understand that you're still working on your PhD. Are there any findings that you can already talk about? Because I know in research, sometimes you want to wait until you can publish something. And the, since it's a public podcast, I don't know what you can share. I'm relatively free to, to share some insights. So one thing uh, that is already published is I, I took the smart shark data and uh, at that time it was 45 projects. And I basically went and uh, tracked their whole lifetime and how the static analysis warnings developed over time. So because I was interested in, for example, are they rising? So are they going up all the time or are they going down all the time? And what happens if a project, for example, really runs PMD? Because we are running PMD retroactively in a re relatively recent version. And there are also projects which already run PMD in their build file. So for that, I had to write some parts of the software which analyze the Maven build files and which can tell me if there are custom rules for PMD, for example, that the project uses and if it uses PMD um, altogether. And um, yeah, the findings that I, uh, what I found was that the sum of warnings over all of the projects that I analyzed is rising as are the lines of code because software grows. So there are sometimes you have cleanup operations or refactoring, but in general, software grows. And so the sum of the warnings also grows, so, which is kind of expected because not every warning, even if project uses PMD, not every warning is really worth of removal because a developer might disagree with the warning and say, well, it wants me that this line is too long, for example, and I think I can go for 150 characters. And uh, yeah, so the sum of the warnings rising, but we also looked at the warning density, which means we have the sum of the warnings per file or per commit and divided by the size of the project at that state. And this is a much better metric because so we can discard the, the size. And what I found there is that the warning density is declining, not in every project, but in most of the projects. And if you add all these numbers up, you can say that on average, each project removes 3.5 warnings per for a number of logical lines per year. So if you say software with less static analysis warnings is better, software gets better over time, at least in our projects that we analyzed. And what I'm currently doing right now is to get this a bit more in perspective. For example, now I want to find out if the density of static analysis warnings in software uh, can be correlated to bugs. This is, in some cases, has been done. So, for example, you can look at bug fixing commits and uh, take a look at the static analysis warnings that are removed as a part of the bug fix and say, okay, this was responsible for the bug fix. But I'm more interested in the long-term effects. So, for example, we have a lot of static analysis warnings that are more related to code style and maintainability, readability of the code. So, for example, long lines, overcomplicated expressions, something like that. And what I want to know is if a file that has a lot of these warnings, is it more error-prone or not? And well, that's what I'm currently working at the moment. For that, the SmartShark database is, is really helpful because we have this information about the project, we have the static analysis warnings, we have the developers, we have the issue databases from the projects, and we can link all of this together. And that's where 
where SmartShark is, is really helpful because it has already this uh, the amount of data and we can already link it. And I can then use this data for, for analyzing this question. And you use some terms here, I think maybe it would be helpful for our listeners to have clarified. When you say static analysis, tell us a little bit more about what you're talking about there. So for static analysis, uh, what is usually done, what this means is that you have the source code and you want to know some specifics about the code without actually executing it. So that's the static part of static analysis. So right. And your static analyzer reads the source code and builds some internal representation of the source code. So for example, there's a kind of tree structure for how the software is constructed. For example, you have at the top level a class or a package, and then it goes into methods, and then it goes into statements. And there's also some linking between these, for example, the symbol table. And you can use these internal representations to gain some knowledge about the source code without executing it. And the static analysis tools usually have a set of predefined rules. For example, this class has too many methods. You should split it up. Right. It uses these external representations and then annotates the lines that it thinks are faulty or responsible for this warning and for the developer to see and say, okay, this in this class has too many methods. You should split it up. And are those recommendations in the static analysis language specific? Yeah, there are certain severities. So there are some, for example, with bugs, have some, uh, in the static analysis, you have some warnings, information, errors, but those are just recommendations for the developer. Sometimes the tool is even wrong because just from looking at the code, you cannot really have every information. But what I find most of the time in, in my case, it's correct. It gets a little fuzzy with the more complex the code is. So for example, if I have a writer, which I don't close at this exact method, but I close it later or I close it where else, this is something that the tool may not, probably not detect. And for this, you can have some annotations in the code and say, okay, I know this, don't warn me about it again. Mm -hmm. But overall, these tools are a good addition to the workflow. So for example, if you have a project and you should basically run static analysis, so you should be selective about the rules. So you should look at the rules these tools support and basically write a configuration file for these tools that you want to use for your project and say, okay, these rules I really care about. So I want to be warned about the violations of these rules. And that also helps with acceptance. So if you have developers that are really annoyed by these tools, you should not really have the tool and enable all 900 rules, but be selective about the rules that you really care about that are really relevant for your project. Yeah. So Thank you. We, we are working mostly with PMD and there are also warnings there related to some specific logging library, which you may not use in a project. You can just disable these warnings and... Thank you for giving us a rundown. How do these rules work or how do you define the rules? Do you refer to specific standards? So for these rules that I mentioned, they are from the tool PMD, which is a well-known static analysis tool for Java. And they are defined by the basically the team of PMD. Usually they are comprised of uh, known best practices and known error patterns that are in there. And yeah, and I think the interesting part for me in this using an off-the-shelf tool would be that the programmers 
have the ability to just use this tool. This is not some research prototype where I make up some rules because I think they might be relevant. But this is a tool that can be used off the shelf by everyone. That's, that's really awesome. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. I'd like to take the conversation a little bit out of the, the weeds of the technical details. In chaos, we're looking at communities and the health of communities and the metrics that you're describing with the static code analysis. I don't think we cover those really well right now. Other metrics that you're also looking at around time to close issues or how contributions in an open source project evolve over time. And if you have looked at any of those kinds of community health metrics, have you paired those with the code metrics that you're looking at? I'd be interested to see if there was some work in this area. Well, we actually um, are using this database also during our normal teaching. So during normal lectures, we often have final projects that students need to do where we want to give some data to analyze. And we often then just take this smart shark data. And one question we actually had a couple of years ago was really, what is the time to close for issues? Can you predict it? Mm -hmm. um, that didn't work really well. The prediction parts, I could just find out, see how long does it probably take part. And then they found this is highly project specific. And then also how far along is a project? So this is more or less an activity metric that just changes over time with the projects. And also the number of users is very important here. Huge projects just have more users that report issues. More issues means that they usually have a longer lifetime because well, your maintainers don't magically grow on trees. So that's something we did. It's really also one big reason why we publish this data and why we share it with the community, because we ourselves, we can't analyze all these really interesting aspects that are in there. Within our database, we have combined code review data with issue data, with pull request data, with the code changes, with the static analysis results, um, with the types of code changes. And so we have all these different kinds of information that allow so many interesting metrics, so many interesting research questions. and. Well, we more, really just need help from others there to analyze it all. There's more data than you can possibly make sense of. Yeah. One thing that I would love to look into is it's also related to how does a community work and well, to defects. How did bugs get past code review? So can we trace back the bugs so we know now from our data where exactly the bug fix changes are? We can basically blame them find they are likely introducing pull requests, for example, try to look at the code reviews there and maybe really find out what went right or wrong or why these bugs made it pass. So that's something that where really our data plays to its strengths. I think there would be a number of people, maybe listeners or even in the Chaos Project, who would be interested in 
exploring this data and seeing what those insights are. You said you do provide the data set and are looking for people to use it. How would someone get started? Well, currently we share a couple of basically dumps of our MongoDB publicly. You can just download some. The largest one is, well, I think you need to download 200 something gigabytes. And then once you unpack it all, you have, you need, I don't know, 400 something gigabyte of space on your disk. And then you have access to one terabyte of data with all our static analysis results. If you want to go a bit smaller, which I would recommend you do at the beginning, you wouldn't have all the static analysis results, but all of our other data. Then that's only, I don't know, 30 gigabytes or something like that. So a lot easier to handle. You can find all the data just on our homepage, smartshark.github.io. And there you find it's all in long-term archives. So we're really uh, lucky that when we wanted to share this, uh, we found that finding a long-term archive for more than 100 gigabytes was actually non-trivial, but really the guys of FixShares were quite awesome there. We were looking at it. I was just tweeting about it. And about one hour later, FixShare just contacted us and said, well, you can just share it here. We give you the storage. And then we could really upload our data there on the same day. That was really nice. And this allows us to share it in a way that's really also good from a scientific perspective. It won't vanish. You just download it. Then... We have together with the downloads, it's about five lines you need to enter into the bash and you have your running MongoDB. And in the same repository, you find a Jupyter notebook which shows you how to access it. I find it really fascinating that you not only look at the interactions around the, an open source project in a way similar to the objectives of the Chaos project, looking at contributions, patches, etc. What I find fascinating is that you also look at the internals of the project with the static analysis. So there could be metrics where you can track if having more contributors leads to better code, more secure code with less bugs. Is there anything, any public project, anything that you, any tales, stories that you can share with us about projects that you have seen improving or getting worse? Well, maybe we can even avoid mentioning the names of the project if that's easier. But I would be curious if you see these trends, if you can capture these trends. So there's actually a literature on defect prediction that basically then just interested in finding defects in software. And one of the features that's proposed there is that you use metrics like the number of different authors or the experience of authors and stuff like that, and the just number of changes to the files. And what's really interesting about these metrics is that a lot of research indicates that these process factors are more important for whether you have defects or not in your software than the internal quality. So the internal quality is also important, size, complexity, and so on. But in terms of predictors for defectiveness, things like how many different authors you have and how many changes overall you have, just have somewhere, it's just much more important. And that's actually something where we are generating um, the data for, where we're sharing the data. We're also really looking at the validity of the data because some findings from prior work might not um, yeah, be 
as valid as we hope because yeah a lot of stuff is just labeled as bugs it's not a bug in reality it's really a feature because if for example java 14 didn't exist at the time the software was written lacking support for java 14 is not a bug that's maybe a lack of a crystal ball or something like that but not a bug and that to some degree affected past results and we're really trying to confirm whether these metrics are really that important but also from another perspective, these metrics are ethically very complicated. From an ethical perspective, that's something we're really just getting into since the last couple of months. Predicting bugs based on the authors is potential can of worms you don't want to open. Because that could also mean that developers are then rated by how well somebody can predict whether there's a bug based on whether they made the commit. And then if you're high in the ranking there, that's probably not something that managers will like. Even though every professional can tell you that's probably just an artifact of the measurement because very competent people often work on very difficult code. And obviously, there will be bugs in very difficult code. So a maintainer may reject patches from some committers just because they feel that those committers are not reliable based well, on the past? If it's based on real experience and personal relationship, that's one thing. That's already not good in terms of community health. That's one thing. But if it's based on a machine learning level, learns is based on historic data. Yes. And then it just recommends this and possibly also in a non-transparent way. That would be really bad. Yeah. I think anytime that metrics are created, there's a potential of gaming the system. And I think one of the things we focused on in the chaos project is group level, repo level, or collection of repository level metrics and not so much the developer metrics for the reasons that you mentioned. There are developers, it becomes this evaluation activity that then changes behavior so that there's a lot of activity perhaps that isn't productive so that our metrics look good. If, I think those are the dangers that you speak of. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we all know if a measure becomes a target, it's a problem. And these Studies are all interesting and all these community metrics and so on, they're all interesting, but they should help us to study communities, help us to improve communities and not change communities to somehow get good values without getting any benefits from it. So if you had one wish for the chaos project, what would you wish for the chaos project? How could we support your work? How could we go into the future? What would you wish for the Chaos Project be or the community? Look at the data we're having. Look whether these relationships in the data are interesting from your perspective to understand community, to measure community health, to measure project health. If you have research questions, give them to us. And if you want to use this, just write us an email. If you want to contribute, just write us an email. If you want to study our data, just do it. Or write us an email. So we're really just looking for people to get any kind of benefit from our work. Excellent. We'll put links in the show notes. Where are you? So you already mentioned emails. Are there any other places online where people who want to follow your work can follow you? That's the homepage where we publish data and where we also have the plugins. That's smartshark.github.io. We'll put yeah. it in the show notes. And we probably should also mention our University of Göttingen group website. 
present. There would also be Alex homepage, because that's really where most of the work is still happening and where all the initial funding and so on came from, where our database is still being hosted. Awesome. Well, thank you. Now, we always like to round off our episodes with value adds or picks, where we share something that has brought value to our lives, that has brought joy to our life. And this can be something that is open source related. It can be something personal. My value add for this week is the globalization and all of the perks that come with it, getting products imported from other countries. So for example, my grandparents have a very specific tea that they drink. And whenever I go over there, I get to drink that tea, but I cannot find it here in the United States because my grandparents are in Germany. But I was able to find the tea, import it, and I can just buy it on Amazon and it ships next day to my home. So I can have that experience and drink this special tea. So that's something that I've recently really enjoyed. Who would like to go next with uh, value add? I've just started reading In the Shadow of Man by Jane Goldow. And it's so fascinating. She spent years in Africa, in the forest, studying chimpanzees and the social relations between the animals and, and how they were using building tools. I find it so fascinating. I'll go next because your story reminds me of my master's advisor, John B. Carlos, the late great John B. Carlos at the University of Minnesota actually helped Jane Goodall analyze her data. His specialty was databases, and he worked with a number of well-known scientists on their data. And so that's uh, pretty interesting that we both have some sort of Jane Goodall connection going here today. Oh, I love this. Yes. Well, for me, it's really in just the last year, all the, let's say, global and also fast local communications that we can still do visually via tools like Zoom, BBB and stuff like that that really helps us stay connected in a time when we cannot really be that connected and actually helps us to stay connected to people we couldn't meet anyways and just became normal to just meet people who are not living in the same city, country, continent and so on and that's something that's really grown over this last year and that's something that I really appreciate. So for me I would say I'm currently writing on the paper and it's kind of stressful because I'm really a, a technical person or a writing person and I found that learning a new language really helps me relax. So I recently picked up Go and I really like the simplicity of the language and that really helped me relax a lot in the, in the last weeks. Wonderful. Wonderful. So many great things to be grateful for. It is time to say thank you. Thank you, Stefan and Alexander, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Very nice meeting you and learning about Smart Shark. Very interesting conversation. Very inspiring. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Andrea and Sean, for being panelists with me today. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes and 
to stay involved with us, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.